This is Joe Cole, and you're listening to the London is Blue podcast. All right, Chelsea fans, welcome back to another episode. That's right, of the London is Blue podcast. Hopefully your favorite Chelsea podcast out there. Dan, one of your hosts here. A little under the weather, but that's not going to stop me from getting some time with the greatest individual, potentially lifting and deadlifting more than Mikhailo Mudrik. I don't know. I heard that a PR was broken today by the one, the only, CFC Central. You know him as Sam as we get into a little bit of a Brentford match preview. And so, Sam, are we going to see the, the IG reel soon? Are we going to see the, you know, uh, you know, faith is not enough type of neck tattoo kind of happening? What is going on with this physical transformation you're going under? I think I'm more likely to get the via the Millers no ragarets tattoos on my chest. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've just been I've just been trying to um, get back into shape. You know, round is also shape, but I, I figured like a nicer one would be more aesthetic. So um, yeah, I mean, football's been a bit off the calendar, unfortunately, because of a lot of work and running around and traveling. So just thought I'd hit the gym with, with the late monsoons coming in, and yes, hitting the PRs, getting some inspiration from Mikhailo Mudrik's. Instagram reels and hopefully I can get somewhere close to to his numbers but yes going good feeling good and uh, invigorated for the pods with you my friend well we, we shall see if this leads to you uh, attempting uh, shrosses or crosses that end up in the net as well in your five of sides or your non-league activity that you get up into but Again, we are going to be talking about the Brentford match. We're also going to get into a little conversation around Chelsea's fixture updates as it relates to the December calendar because those were made official as of today, time of recording. And there is a little bit of controversy there. But before we get into that, we just want to thank everybody who helps support the podcast. You can do so by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Great way to help support the podcast for free and let big media know that uh, we're we're out there. We are the Chelsea Podcast to listen to. You can also uh, go, join us on YouTube as well. Go to YouTube and hit the subscribe and notify buttons as we continue that quest to hit 30,000 subscribers there as well. Again, costs you nothing. And if you'd like to separate a couple of dollars and put them into our pockets and join a wonderful community, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash London Blue Pod. But you don't have to do that to enjoy the show. You just have to get it here and tap into the conversation. And Sam, I mentioned this at the beginning, but I want to run through it, give a little opinion, and get your thoughts on it too. Chelsea's updated schedule for the month of December. Chelsea are going to play a lot of games. Starts with the, and this is just the men's team, not considering the women's team, because they also have a busy December as well. If you're a Chelsea supporter, you have to pencil in a lot of time in between all of your family and festive activities. It is Sunday, the 3rd of December, against Brighton at home. Wednesday, the 6th of December, Man United away. Sunday, the 10th, against Everton. Saturday, the 16th, against Sheffield United. The most controversial, and we'll get into it in a moment, Sunday, the 24th, on Christmas Eve, against Wolves away. Wednesday, the 27th, Crystal Palace at home. Saturday, the 30th, against Luton away. And then you get into the next match to follow, which currently is scheduled, is the January 13th match against Fulham at home. And the note being that if we were to beat Blackburn Rovers, which you would hope that we would do in the Carabao Cup, there would also be another match added to what is already a packed December. 
on the 19th or the 20th. The big one here, Sam, is the change to the, the 24th. The Boxing Day fixture against Wolves moves off, or actually was a pre uh, in the weekend on the 23rd, moves a day forward to be a Christmas Eve fixture. And there is a statement from the Chelsea Supporters Trust. There's now a conflict against the, you know, uh, um, really for people, families, individuals, you know, supporters who are going to go out and watch the match. I think there's a lot of varying opinions. I think there are some people who are saying, what, what does it matter? Why does it have an issue? Like, I'm just going to stay at home and watch it at home. So I've got no problem. There's people who are like, well, this is another change of plans. It's a little bit of a not the standard operating order. And so maybe just, you know, what are some of the thoughts that you're having as you look at and listen to the commentary from, you know, supporters across the globe as it relates to how this impacts the, the experience or this, you know, match structure for the month of December? Yeah, lots of lots of stuff to unpack, to be honest. Uh, that's seven games, I think, in the space of 27, not counting the cup fixture, if you go through. So that's effectively eight games in, in 27, which is going to be, like always, a brutal December. So I do not look forward to it. Obviously, it's, it's going to be rough for everybody involved. Uh, with respect to, in particular, about the Christmas fixture, I, I've seen a variety of opinions. You know, obviously, the match-going fans are going to be worst hit by this, the traveling, having to go out on a holiday, leave family and then sort of like attend the game because, you know, that's where uh, the heart belongs and you have, you know, you can't just put it aside on a special day so people will go. Um, and then obviously hearts go out to all, all those guys who are involved in the match happening, the security, the people at the at the stadium, all of those guys have to work uh, on a public holiday and that's been taken away from them. So I think that's extremely sad to hear. It's unfortunate and shouldn't happen. Um, interestingly, like for the non-match going fans, I've seen a lot of, I think, American sports fans who've, who've talked about like maybe the MLB or the NBA, they have uh, games specifically on the on Christmas Day. And that's sort of like become like yeah. a, a Christmas ritual for them. So they're sort of enjoying the, you know, the aspect of maybe having something to uh, enhance the festive cheer on that day. So I've seen both sides of the spectrum. I completely understand the grievances, which are completely valid. Uh, but as a non-match going fan, I can also see why people see the appeal. So I think it's a little split as most things are, most discourses are on on football, Twitter and elsewhere. But I think in particular, this shouldn't happen uh, because you know the fans are the heartbeat of the club and you shouldn't be taking them for granted ever. So I hope that uh, in the future, we don't have to resort to these kind of measures. But again, it just shows you the direction the game is going. Uh, TV revenue being prioritized over uh, people's, you know, time and and money and and just their dedication being taken for granted, which is always unfortunate. And as we know, the TV revenue though is what drives the signings of players like Moises Caicedo or like Enzo Fernandez or others that Chelsea have acquired over the past couple of seasons and why you see such large investment into the sport at this point in time. I would read the Chelsea supporters trust comment next. Uh, they So they kind of indicate that this is the first time the fixture has been played on Christmas Eve since 1995. Their statement is, it is totally unacceptable that Wolves versus Chelsea has been scheduled for Christmas Eve. Since the rumors began to circulate, the trust has been very clear that selecting this kickoff time will place another hurdle in the way of mainly match going, many match-going supporters. Not only could this lead to staffing issues at the Molyneux, which is the, the Wolves ground, but holiday transport timetables will uh, further inconvenience supporters. 
On December 24th, October, we request an urgent meeting with the relevant decision makers within the Premier League. We expect this meeting will be held very soon alongside the Wolves 1877 Trust and the Football Supporters Association. The Trust will formally request the Premier League properly consult supporters on this issue and that they reverse this decision. We will provide a further update. I think it is extremely pie in the sky to assume that this is going to be reversed. I think it's always great to have an organization like the Chelsea Supporters Trust who is advocating on behalf of the individuals who would be going or attending this match over the weekend. They would want to have this as a part of their festive activities and not have it on their Christmas Eve. I think it is going to lead to a lot of personal decisions on do you spend time with your family or do you go to this match and make that a part of your Christmas Eve activity? And to the point you made earlier, like we have seen, and again, this is an American view on it, so I know this is not going to be the same view that every individual who is a match-going supporter might have or is an away ticket scheme supporter might have, but there are and has become a market for, you know, activities on holidays, particularly when, you know, you might be secular, you might not actually, um, you know, partake in the actual holiday itself, but doing things like being able to uh, go attend a football game, uh, American football game on Christmas Day or on, uh, you know, Thanksgiving or, you know, an example, like you mentioned, the NBA, the Christmas slate of games is one of the, you know, most popular kind of activities that goes on in a lot of households where individuals enjoy sport. And so there is a lot of ways that you can slice it, you know, and, and in no way does anybody win in any decision. I just think that the the end sum is going to be that there will not be a change to this season. And the most that the supporters trust and the Wolves supporters trust and other organizations is the pressure could be put into next season across 20 clubs in the conversation that they have as a Premier League governing body to make a decision to not do something like this next year. Uh, but I guarantee that if the ratings are good and the money is good, it will become something that is commonplace and then just become something that gets recycled through as uh, maybe clubs you know, have to rotate through this type of responsibility, which is how a lot of the holiday fixtures are rotated in the U.S., is potentially th that would be a solution is that so while there is an inconvenience to a set of fans every year that it is not your team every year that has to run into that situation or challenge your family plans or your holiday plans against your footballing plans yeah i mean i can see like the divide there but what i am extremely miffed about is the decision to also move um, the Chelsea, uh, sorry, the Everton fixture to a point where it will be clashing with our women's team's fixture with Arsenal, which is an absolutely massive game. And yeah. that's going to deny match-going fans like two supremely good fixtures. And obviously you want maximum exposure for uh, the women's league as well. They're doing so, so well. And obviously we've got the best team in the country. So we definitely have to give them every bit of support that we can. So, uh, in a shout out to her game to Chelsea, a um, lot of amazing people doing great work. They were very quick to point out that that shouldn't be the case. And I and I wholeheartedly agree. So um, there are conflicts of interest. But, uh, you know, again, these decisions sort of rub me and I'm guessing a lot of Chelsea fans the wrong way, especially the ones who make the effort to go to the games and, and you know, sing in full voice. And, and it's hard to do that when, you know, you're being ripped apart into different directions. So... Um, yeah, a bit bit of a downer, Dan. I didn't want this to happen in December of all months, but uh, yeah, hopefully lessons will be learned and better decisions will be made. Well, 
with all that said, we are going to take a look at the fixture that is closest to happening, not one that is further down the list, and that is the match against Brentford coming up. So Brentford's record currently in the Premier League, uh, 2, 4, and 3 with 10 points, uh, 1.11 points per game, 14th in the Premier League at the moment, home record of 1-3-1 with 6 points, and an away record of 1-1-2 with 4 points. Uh, they've scored 14 total goals and 12 against, so a plus 2 goal difference there. Their expected goals were 16.9, so a little underperforming, and their actual expected goals allowed at 10.9, so a little, again, difference there. Um, and their last win came against, or the last match was a 3-0 win against Burnley, who it's kind of been there for the taking for most teams who've had a chance to run up against them this season. So, Sam, as we just look at that, you know, are there, for those who don't remember or don't pay punch attention to Brentford or don't remember what their squad makeup looks like, like who are those players that we should be looking at as kind of issues or concerns, the players that you're likely, if Brentford get anything out of this game, are going to hear a ton about, or who are the players that we're not going to hear a ton about, because they also seemingly have a bit of a similar injury situation as, you know, as, as compared to Chelsea, which is hard to consider that there is a club out there in the Premier League that is struggling as badly as Chelsea has, uh, is as it relates to the injuries. Yeah, it's probably the battle of the stretcher bearers, to be honest. I mean, there are almost seven injuries on each side. Um, so that's going to definitely take away a lot of the bite from the game, especially for, for Brentford. They're missing some key players. Obviously, we all know of Ivan Tony and the betting ban that happened, and he's going to be out till at least Jan or Feb. Uh, Mikel Damsgaard was just about doing okay. He's also out. And Shandon Baptiste and Rico Henry, two guys who it's a big part of of Brentford's rise throughout the Premier League. So I think they're also going to be missing. Um, but in general, I think it's just stability, isn't it, Dan? I mean, they've had the same manager now since they came into the Premier League. They were also uh, doing very well under him in the championship. And it's just been, it just carried over that momentum to a point where they've been able to build on it, recruit properly. They've, they've been stellar in their recruitments and they just found great players to come in, keep that momentum, maybe make small improvements and basically finish in positions where a lot of people wouldn't give them uh, the benefit of, of finishing at. So I think overall, we're going to come up against a side that is similar in terms of where it is, uh, where we are in the table. Like, you know, they're just, um, like you said, underperforming. They should be higher up in the table. Their defense should be keeping out more, but they've conceded more than they should. They should be scoring more, but, you know, their front line has sort of not fired enough. Uh, maybe that's a that's a narrative you've heard elsewhere. So I think it's just uh, hoping that they don't fire on all cylinders against us. And and um, it is a dangerous side, despite them being you know in a place in the table where it suggests that they're having a bad time. They're not. They play well. Extremely unfortunate to concede two stoppage time uh, goals to Scott McTominay after keeping United out on bare scraps for the entirety of the game. So they just had that kind of season. So, yeah, I think it's going to be a feisty game. It's definitely going to be a physical test for a lot of the players that we have, especially the younger ones who are just getting to grips with the physicality of the league. And, uh, yeah, it just overall a very good, well-trained side to come up against. The match of the should-haves, 
should have been performing better than they are, and Stretchers is coming to town this weekend. We're going to get a little bit more into the style play in addition to the strengths and weaknesses of the side. But before that we do that, we're going to take a quick break, and when we're back, we're going to get into all that. So stay tuned. All right, Sam, so as we take a look at it, I think when we think about the, the style of play, you mentioned that they have had an opportunity under Thomas Frank to build towards a regular style, a regular formation, a regular way of execution. You know, they, they do tend to play, I think, extremely direct style, which is maybe good and bad uh, as we think about how Chelsea can respond to that. And, you know, there is maybe reliance on some very particular players uh, who uh, have been also great fantasy Premier League assets this season for those who play the game. So why don't we run through what are a couple of the 411 or the basic bits of information people need to consider when they think about evaluating this Brentford side? Yeah, like I mentioned, I think Thomas Frank is an important figure that we should talk about. He's, like I said, been a stable presence, been the rock of the club. So they've sort of built and given him the ideal tools to to get towards what I would say a very functional kind of football, very efficient. And I tend to think that they sort of view football the way, you know, like Bolton Wanderers did back in, in their heyday. Like it's a very ruthlessly efficient kind of football. It's just back to front, very direct with players that offer direct impacts. There's, there's minimizing of the kind of possession football and keeping the ball for the sake of it. It's just... Uh, very pragmatic, which is nice to see in terms of um, how their execution is. So now what, what has happened is, like I mentioned, the, the stability has remained the same. The principles have remained the same. So they tend to go with a 4-3-3 against sites where they're expected to have more of the ball, where they think that they can match up 1v1 in terms of personnel very well. But against the top six sites or against sites where they believe that they're man-to-man um sort of matchups could be a little out of their favor they tend to go three five two and and then they retreat into a five three two so uh, a little more defensive and thomas frank has this lovely interview with jamie carragher on sky sports please go watch it on youtube he talks about his principles and why he plays in in a certain system and and why he makes certain decisions and he says that the back five is just very good to deny space you know it allows you to do multiple things it allows you to basically have certain superiorities while defending it allows you to have certain principles which frustrate your opponent all the while so i think he's going to deploy the 352532 against us he's done that before in the 2-0 win at stanford bridge last season so there's in all probability expected to go the same way uh, this time as well so uh, what you should know obviously is the fact that they're very aggressive uh, man to man pressing uh, tend to try and stifle the build up the PPDA or passes per defensive action. So the lower the number, the better the press. Uh, we were top of that table up until a few weeks back. So we were at 6.5. Then we dropped to around 10 in the last two games between uh, Fulham and Burnley. And then against Arsenal, our PPDA was 31, which is the lowest it has been because we just sat back and waited to press when they came to us. And uh, Brentford are somewhere at 9.9. So they are aggressive, but they also tend to measure how well they press. They sort of go back, wait for you to come out, and then just like us, try to open up space in behind for their attackers to exploit. So that's what they're going to try to do against us as well. Uh, Once the middle third of the first line is breached, you know, then they try to go back into this deep 5-3-2 or 4-5-1, depending on their opponent. 
and the strikers also go very, very deep. You'll often see that front two, like Yuan Visa and Brian Mbomo, probably come in the defensive third, make sure that spaces are minimized and they're not offering any kind of gaps to for teams to play through. So it's, once they retreat into that block, it's definitely going to be very, very difficult to try and break them down. So uh, that's one thing that we should keep an eye on. Um, statistically speaking, two of their three centre-backs are in the top 10 for aerial duels, one in the Premier League, so Pinnock and uh, Nathan Collins. Both have 65% uh, in terms of their win percentage in the air. And the defence is very functional. Like I mentioned, it's very geared towards winning everything in the air. And once they've got their five-man backline, and then you've got somebody like a um, Norgard who's very, very good in uh, in the air as well, on, on the ground as well. So they're going to be very difficult to put uh, any kind of aerial threat into when you try to cross from from wide positions or when you try to just hoist the ball inside. It, it's probably going to be cleared away. They have conceded a couple of goals like that, but I would say that uh, most of the times they're very solid inside their own box. They just like to get strong, robust players in there and and try to nullify everything that they're trying to do. So um, that's something to keep an eye on. Like I mentioned, extremely direct, but I would say that post Ivan Tony's ban, they're just struggling to to try and emulate what they were doing last season. They aren't able to win their aerial duels. They aren't able to get their second balls into situations where they can try and mount quick transitions from from back to front. So I think that's somewhere that they've struggled a little bit. Um, but obviously they've got a very compact system which relies on going direct. And if the ball is lost, then they've got guys like Norgard who are going to win the ball back recycle and try to make sure that you get your front three, front four to attack relentlessly. So it's a it's a complete cycle. It's a vicious cycle of them just winning the ball back, throwing it long again, then recycling it and going at you over and over again. So that's going to be something that we have to be careful about. Uh, in terms of the wingbacks, again, uh, it's, it's interesting because they tend to be very attack-minded, but like Thomas Frank says, he also relies on Somebody like your wing back, your white CB in a back three, your number eight, and your defensive midfielder to basically make a four v three situation out wide. So, if you're trying to get Mudrik or Sterling or whoever it is who's playing out wide into positions where they want to take on people, I think it's going to be a very torrid afternoon. Um, the moment you allow them to have that five three two block is is when your wide players, I would say will become defunct 1v1. One, one one. We just have to do it quicker. But if you try to do it against three players, four players, then it's going to be futile all, all afternoon. So um, that's going to be one threat. And the last point I'd say is that um, they've just been consistently lethal at set pieces. Now, this tends to happen a lot with Danish sides. And uh, um, Brentford in particular tend to have this set piece playbook. So they tend to have almost like a, an NFL kind of guide for them to to say that this is what we're going to do in set pieces. So they have a variety of routines, but they also do these little tweaks where they're trying to find out how to exploit the opposition. So in terms of, uh, let's say, the game against Liverpool last season, you had uh, Costa Simkas, who was playing instead of uh, Andy Robertson on at the left-back position. And David Raya was basically going goal kick to left-back slot over and over again to try and win an aerial duel against the left-back. So they are capable of doing those things, but they'll also throw set uh, set pieces to you, like, you know, just um, try to get a fake overload. So they basically try to crowd bodies in one position to sort of fool you into 
trying to pressure that area and then they'll deliver the ball somewhere on the back post so there's no pressure then they'll also do something like bring Norgard from midfield at the near post and when the ball comes to him he flicks it to the back post so it's about creating pressure in one area and then delivering the ball where there's no pressure so they tend to do that very well also excellent at throw in so that's what we are up against like i said bolton 3.0 robust team extremely good strong very good ball winners are uh, physically extremely competent very very good at set pieces at second balls so it's going to be a, a an endurance test it's going to be i would say a marathon instead of like a 100 meter sprint yeah it's interesting because when you look at brentford's recent history against chelsea you know they've only played um a handful of times relative to the, like the matches match history that Chelsea had against like an Arsenal or Liverpool, but since they returned to the Premier League in twenty twenty one, Chelsea wins a one nil game. They win a two nil League Cup game, and then that's when it starts to go awry. There was the four one loss uh, to Brentford in, in a game which Ivan Tony did not <laughs> did not score. Surprisingly, it was uh, pretty much everybody else. Um, yeah, yeah, Janlet and others, uh, Janlet Brace and Eriksson goal and uh, Oisa goal um, ended up taking Chelsea and putting us to the sword. And then it's been a draw and another loss. And so Chelsea don't have a comprehensive record against this Brentford side. They've matched up against us pretty well. In terms of areas where maybe where Chelsea have struggled this season per 90, where we average three big chances uh, per match and we miss two per match, uh, they are also in a, a similar setting, um, particularly without Ivan Tony, They're at 3.1 uh, per 90 for big chances and 2.3 for big chances missed. Um, you know, they are doing so off of uh, more more shots than us. Uh, they're averaging more shots during their per 90s as well, at 15 uh, to our 13. So it almost feels like we are potentially like, you know, could be kind of, you know, on the same path. And it this match, to me, almost feels like a definition match for both sides where, like, you will define if you are better than the the your shadow effectively that you're grappling against you're absolutely right i think that's a great point because i was looking at the numbers and i actually thought that they were they looked better than us on certain metrics um the ones you mentioned like shots they're taking more even in terms of i think the only metric where we are slightly better is in terms of non-penalty xg allowed per shot for the tight second with 0.09 and we are top of the league with 0.08. So this metric basically tells you what's the value of the shots that we're allowing, the average shot. And the lower it is, obviously, the better it is. So there's an 8% chance that we're any shot that we're allowing on average goes in while Brentford are at 9%. So it's defensively very, very uh, tight for both teams. I think it's going to be very um, sticky at times. It's It's just going to be jostling to get that edge and it could very well just, you know, peter out towards 0-0 considering how many chances each team misses. But hopefully that that just flips around. But I would say, yeah, that's that's a, one of the weaknesses. But that's a mirror effect. I think you look at Brentford and you see a lot of the weaknesses that we are going through, which is why we should be worried. Because we know we are getting better with every game. And uh, there's a feeling that they might as well. Because they had their first win after a long, long time in the Premier League. I think they were winless in eight. 
and um, yeah, it just uh, um, I mean they broke their spell against Burnley as well. So it, again, mirror effect. So hopefully it doesn't uh, end up sort of galvanizing them at the wrong time, but uh, a team to be to be worried about hundred percent. Well, before you fully worry the listeners around what might happen in this match, let's do one last break and we will get through how Chelsea might combat those weaknesses and what are some of the things or questions that Pochettino is going to have to answer before he makes some predictions on a starting lineup. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. All right. So you hinted at it, Sam, but there are weaknesses that Chelsea would like to exploit. And we, we do know that probably the biggest one is the lack of Ivan Tony on the side, you know, even though Brentford are finding some ways to live life without Tony at this point in time, it is definitely an imperfect side at the moment without him. Uh, we did talk about the big chances being missed, and we also did talk about the fact that they are letting in more goals than they should. Um, I don't think they have a, a keeper self-destructing on them to maybe necessarily be a part of that, but and we do know that they have a turnover in that position this season as well, given the transfer outgoings. So what are the areas that you think uh, Chelsea will be able to exploit based upon the weaknesses that are cropping up over uh, their run of games so far? I'll just give you a little bit of happy news. They do have goalkeeper issues. Um, they've got All two right. goalkeepers. <laughs> they've got two goalkeepers, and both of them, I would say, have struggled and, and have been inconsistent and have made mistakes that have led to goals. Uh, I was watching the game against Manchester United to prep for this pod and uh, Thomas Straposha was playing that game and he should have stopped McTominay's winner. Uh, got a hand to it, but it just bounced off the post. But he looked very nervous every single time that he had to, to play a pass through pressure. You know, those little line-breaking passes that you try to play, you know, when, when you're getting pressed. He looked very nervous. His The weight of his passes, the execution just looked shaky all over. And the other keeper is Mark Flecken, who they've used uh, quite prominently, and, and he struggled as well. So it was his distribution that led to um, that goal against Arsenal for Nketiah, I think it was, who just pounced upon a return pass and then you slotted it past him. So there are definitely goalkeeper issues. They... Like both keepers have now sort of, um, they should have prevented more goals, but I think their NPXG minus X, like goals conceded is like in negative, just like ours. So um, tend to be a little more sloppy than they should. So hopefully we can utilize that. So I think that's one of the weaknesses I would, I would say. The second is that with the injuries that they've got, they do look vulnerable to being pressed. Um, Pochettino might have to move away from his newfound strategy of, Let's retreat and make sure that they come at us so we can run at them. I think it would be beneficial for us to try and apply a little more of that aggressive pressure that we saw uh, earlier on in the season. Like against Liverpool, for example, just that constant hustling and harrying and, and basically trying to cut down angles. It just works very well, especially against the side that is trying to go long all the time. So you want to deny them the space. You want to basically cut down those opportunities and make sure that the quality of the ball reaching the front line is basically, you know, nullified and then take advantage of that. So I think pressing, counter-pressing will have an effect in this game. I wouldn't be surprised if we force a mistake. Uh, a former Brentford keeper almost gifted a goal to to Cole Palmer in the last game. Hopefully the current Brentford keeper will end up doing us a favor. So I think that's one to keep an eye on. Um, the second I would say is that their 
forwards tend to be very uh they tend to physically be i would say under a lot of load um they require to make these long sprints back to front and i think post the 70 75th minute they do like they look like they've just lost their legs you know it has happened in a couple of games that i've seen where the decision making the shooting uh becomes erratic it it tends to be let's just shoot let's not try and like hold on to the ball because i don't think i have gas left in the tank so i don't have the data to back this up because i would have loved to to go through the stint stats and figure out how it is varying over time but just on the eye test it does look like it does take a toll on the front two and and it's been a consistent front two uh, in in the absence of uh, ivan tony so most of those uh, the two guys who are going to start against us will have uh, to repeat those intensive duties back to front so i think that's one to keep an eye on they've also been interestingly very leaky in the final half an hour of games so they've conceded eight of their 12 in the last 30 minutes of game so even if you're one down god forbid i think there's every chance that you go on to score a couple more in the last 30 minutes so maybe that backs up my my hypothesis that they tend to get a little gassed after the 70th mark so we should definitely keep at it irrespective of how the score looks and uh, you mentioned the the finishing the struggling with finishing i think in tony's absence they've now ended up missing 21 big chances already which is the highest in the league they're joint with everton and the front two the first choice front two of embermo and wisar now missed one third of those chances so they do get the big chances for the right players it's just the conversions not happening uh, which is worrying for them but it is also worrying that they do create that volume of big chances i think that's something that we have to keep an eye on and uh, interestingly for a team that practices set pieces that often they've looked very leaky on set pieces i think they've been threatened a lot through crosses and through aerial deliveries more more than they would have liked to and i think it's a little bit of their injury crisis also playing in they've had to move around a couple of players and maybe that's sort of like wreaking havoc in terms of their organization but four goals now this season that they've conceded from from set pieces and a lot of teams are trying to exploit them at the back post now liverpool tried something interesting they basically had a couple of guys make near post runs and then they had three players or maybe even one player just running at the back post to try and get a 1v1 against their wing back so i think that's something of an interesting strategy <clears throat> uh, you would want to have you know an aerially competent midfielder i don't think misha is going to rise 3 feet in the air and head something in but you know you never know with misha so um that's a viable strategy i think having some kind of aerial strength will help in negating their attacking set pieces as well as exploiting the defensive ones i think that's something to keep an eye on and the last i would say is they look very vulnerable from transitions arising from attacking set pieces so this happens when they usually put their center backs to try and attack during corners and during free kicks and it inevitably ends up just leading two maybe three players at the back and a lot of teams have exploited that with quick passes united did it very very well but failed to capitalize a couple of times rashford was guilty for missing you know guilt edged opportunities but if you do get the run on him and if you've got players like mudrik and sterling running into space even jackson for example i think we will cause them a lot of issues so yeah, even if they do get corners which is a good time for them to score i think there's every chance that our goal comes from a breakaway 
from one of their corners. So I think that's something that uh, I would definitely be emphasizing to the team before it goes out to play. Yeah, I think that gets us into the questions that Pochettino and as we build towards what we think the starting 11 will be for this match, the questions that he is going to be pondering, does he go back to a central number nine in Nico Jackson with maybe Sterling and Palmer potentially as the wingers, or does he go with the Cole Palmer, Connor Gallagher, press forward, flanked by a Mikhailo Mudrik and a Raheem Sterling? It feels like this may benefit from having a central striker, but, you know, because you mentioned, I think, some of the challenges that the wing or wingers would have. Um, is that what you're thinking, that, you know, Jackson ends up going back into the starting lineup, or do you feel like it's a, it, we looked really good against Arsenal for 75 minutes, and so don't screw around too much with what was you know, producing some success against one of the best sides in the Premier League? Yeah, I think there are pros cons to, to each approach, to be honest. Um, what worked for us against Arsenal, I would say, is the fact that we had an extra midfielder instead of a centre-forward. So, when we were sitting in a 4-4-2 block, it just made sense to, to block those passing angles for Arsenal and uh, make sure that we are compact centrally because they do like getting the ball from their centre-backs to one of their eights to rise to Odegaard and then go back to front very quickly. But I don't think Brentford are the kind of side that wants to do that. They don't want to be Brighton. They don't want to play those incisive passes into midfield, turn and create those patterns and basically like waltz past the midfield. I don't think they're going to do that. So I don't know if that strategy works, especially having maybe like no centre forward and going with an extra midfielder. Um, there's also the additional fact that I would say that a lot of the times when Sanchez did go back to front with his long kicks because we did not have uh, anybody up front, even though Jackson's not very good in the air, he does try and at least compete for balls. And I think that's something that we missed. So I think at one point in time when I was looking live at the numbers, Sanchez had only completed three of his of his 10 long balls. And most of them were just um, hit into space, you know, where there was no pressure, no no kind of issue for Arsenal centre-backs to recover the ball and then recycle it at their own whim. So I think that's something that'll be a little difficult to re-emulate in a game of this stature, which is why I think like maybe Jackson might start. It it would make sense to have him up front. He's not going to get a lot of change in the air because A, he's poor and B, you know, their centre-backs are very well attuned dealing with everything in the air. But I think he does add um, a reference point for the other guys. And I, I like you mentioned, maybe that comes at the cost of dropping Palmer or dropping Mudrik, most probably Mudrik because... You know, Palmer's been playing really, really well. Plus, he's a bit of a different profile compared to Sterling. And like I mentioned, with just how much um, of an emphasis Brighton plays, sorry, or Brentford plays on on getting, just sealing out wide players but by getting like four players uh, against three or even like going four against two, they're not going to be a lot of 1v1 opportunities except maybe on the break. So... Uh, I would say maybe Jackson could come in, but I wouldn't be surprised if Posh throws a curveball and again goes with what has worked and um, get two pacey players in Mudrik and Sterling and get somebody like a Palmer to try and uh, exploit them on transition. I think that also works. But uh, yeah, I think it's it's going to give and take one way or the other. It's just whatever, whatever Pochettino feels 
could work better on the day. Um, I think he's entitled to make that decision, but completely subjective. I, I think the other question is going to be, and we're recording this before the you know, news about fitness on certain players comes to light, but around what happens with the back line. We know that Axel Disasi was not available to start the last match. We know that Reese James came in as a late substitute and did not necessarily start. And so there is some consideration around what does that back line look like? Do we see Kukurea start the match as well? I feel like this is more about who is fit and available, particularly considering the remainder of the matches we have up till the next international break and what is about to be a very, very busy December that we will most likely not rush Reese James back into starting a, a full match would be my guess, considering when you do also have the Brentford or the um, the Blackburn Rovers match coming up midweek as an opportunity to rotate in and get some minutes to get back to full fitness. So I feel like it's probably a gusto start if Disasi is healthy along with Thiago Silva and then most likely a Levi Colwell left back situation. But are you thinking that there might be anything different from a backline setup? Like you mentioned, I think it depends purely on availability. But if fit, if everybody's fit, it 100% has to be Colwell at left back, Disasi and Silva. And I, I go with this with no disrespect to Gukurea. He did very well in the first half against Bukayo Saka. Second, not so much. He lost a couple of 1v1s and then basically created a lot of issues for us. But I think in terms of, like I mentioned, just negating set pieces, which Brighton for, uh, which Brentford, oh my God, why am I, why am I saying Brighton over and over again? They scarred me for life, haven't they? Uh, Brentford, <laughs> but Brentford, um, I think rely a lot on set pieces. So it's definitely going to be something that we did against West Ham, where we had that aerial superiority to try and, counteract that that threat that they have and obviously add a little bit of threat also in the other uh, other half of the pitch. Um, Colville hasn't scored as yet. I, I really think he should have scored. I think he's missed two big chances. He should have scored, but hopefully, you know, he gets one and, and gives us the additional advantage of having three centre-backs in, in a back four. So I think logically it makes sense for me to keep Colville. But again, if the Sassi is not fit, I don't know where Badia Shiel is. I don't know whether we want to risk it. But um, if possible, I would go with additional height and aerial presence in the back line, considering the rest of our team is pretty short and not good in the air. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. So as we think about the the full lineup, and I know that there are probably thoughts around the best individuals to take advantage of the 1v1 weaknesses and getting you know, the, the more prolific scores or recent scores of goals for Chelsea, uh, an opportunity to run at and take on the keeper. You know, if we agree on that back line, like I, I, I don't think, A, I, I don't think Sanchez is necessarily going to get benched even after the mistakes. I feel like he's going to be given an opportunity to start. I do think it'd be interesting to see uh, and since we won't necessarily do a preview for this match, but Blackburn Rovers might be the first and only time or one of the very few matches that Petrovic gets an opportunity to start this season. And maybe that allows us to start to have more genuine questions about who should be starting between the sticks. But so if we assume that our back line is that Levi Colwell, Desaustie, Silva, and a 
gusto start, I would imagine? Are there any disagreements up to that point? No, not at all. I think you're absolutely spot on. I think it's just also following a pattern of how Pochettino's bought back players from injury. He's given Reese, I think, 10-15 minutes and he directly won't go for a start unless it was a, a game of vital significance. But I think it's come to a point where he can afford to give Reese a little bit of time. And, um, you know, if the alternative is doing something like we did with Breuer, which is what started him for 45 minutes because Sterling was sick. But we all know that after that half, Breuer went back injured. So we don't want that yeah. situation. And I think it's just safer to start Gusto. And maybe like after 60 minutes, if things are going okay, then maybe you give Reese 30 minutes and then try to like ease him in over over the rest of that time. So I think Gusto should definitely start. All right. So we have Sanchez, Gusto, Disasi, Silva, and Levi Colwell. I don't think there's going to be a disagreement on Gallagher, Caicedo, and Fernandez as the midfield option. And I, then I think it comes down to a: Are we starting Nico Jackson? And then what that does to push out one of the other attackers? I feel like Cole Palmer is most likely the one that is the lock between Mudrik and Sterling. So I guess if I were to say, and I think maybe we will see the return of Jackson with Palmer and then one of the others, it feels like it's going to be Sterling. But you can correct me if I am heading in a different direction than you and if your uh, fellow weightlifter uh, is potentially the individual that you would see starting on uh, on the wing there, Sam. No, I think uh, there is no wrong answer in, in terms of selecting a back uh, in a front line in this game. I think you could go either way. There are definitely advantages to going uh, because if you withdraw the front center forward because obviously you're not going to get any change, the assumption that you're not going to get any first balls to knock down against a very strong Brentford back line, then you might as well just try and get that extra midfielder to cause issues in possession. So maybe... You got somebody like a Palmer, especially, you know, in in the five three two that that Brentford sort of like retreat into. The gaps against a five three two are usually between um, the wing back and and the number eight on on the corresponding side. That little pocket on in the half space. That's where the the issue is. When I'm looking at the players that cause the most amount of damage in those pockets, it's either Enzo Fernandez or you've got Cole Palmer on the right hand side. So I think. By virtue of that, especially if you're anticipating them going back quicker than usual, then you want somebody like a Cole Palmer. You also, ironically, would want somebody like a Reese James because he's very, very good from those positions. Attacking, crossing, everything. He's just got a great sense of what to do with the ball in those positions. So I think, you know, if he was completely fit, he would have been a fantastic addition to to a game like this. But I would say like, Definitely starting Palmer makes sense by virtue of the tactical setup we'll be up against. And also, like you said, the form and and in terms of what he offers is different compared to Mudrik and Sterling. And by virtue of just, you know, scoring, making sure that he's very, very good 1v1, I think Sterling does get the nod. But um, I don't know whether it's going to be like Jackson or Mudrik. I think those two other guys competing for the for the last slot in the attack. I, it could go either way, but I expect one of them to get dropped. I don't know which one, but if I had my money on it, I would I would think that Jackson comes in and Mudrik comes on as a super sub. What about you? Yeah, I think, I think we're aligned. I think that is the lineup that I'm anticipating. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the lineup as well, listeners. So uh, tweet at us or hit us up in the YouTube comments. But 
that's kind of the thoughts or expectation for the match. I guess the last question before we get out of here, Sam, is what do you think Chelsea end up doing as it relates to a win, loss, or draw, and uh, maybe a, a score prediction? I'm just going to plug in our previews here, Dan. I mean, last time we did get it right. I said there's, there's going to be like a three or four goal margin win for us against Burnley. So applause for both of us. Finally, we can't hear it, but I think both of us deserve it after the kind of work we've been putting in. But I think like in terms of this game, uh, I would I would say that it could go either way. I would like to see what Brentford do against, especially in, in the you know, sort of the indifferent form that they've had. Like, they've lost a lot of games and they finally won one. And um, they might just end up saying that a point would be good. So, I don't know if they go a little bit defensive and want to play exclusively on the break. But it could either end 0-0 or it could either end, you know, maybe maybe 2-0 in our favour. I I will go a little off. You know, we get a couple of goals. What about you? I'm hoping you share my optimism and uh, go for a win? I am going for a win, but I think it is going to be the 1-0 win where the goal does not come early and we are made to suffer just a little bit, uh, maybe even into the second half before Chelsea find the unlock because we are still a bit of a team in process and in development. And so um, I'm hopeful that uh, I'd love for Levi Colwell to join the list of players who are scoring goals. I'd love maybe for Cole Palmer to get another penalty, but uh, I'd love an open play goal. I would really just love, uh, if we are going to see Nico Jackson start, it would be really great to see him scoring goals uh, as the striker, as the number nine for the side. I think that is a confidence booster for everyone in the club when he is scoring goals. So uh, that's what I'm hoping for. I'm hoping for at minimum, a 1-0 win with Nico Jackson getting back on the score sheet and Chelsea continuing to build confidence against a run of difficult fixtures that will be coming up after the Blackburn game. Yeah, and we've done very well in that first test. We arguably should have had three points. I don't think there's any debate there. So hopefully we can like add to the little bit of the momentum that we've gathered and uh, become a steaming train by the end of that run. You know, Manchester City look vulnerable. Uh, they look like they're still figuring out what their strongest team is, how they want to play. Uh, you know, nobody's invincible. So I am quite optimistic, which is my usual state of mind. And like you said, I think I think there's every chance that we emerge pretty well out of this run. And what a confidence boost that will be for us. Yes, indeed. So hopefully you enjoyed this episode, listeners, as we preview the Brentford match for this weekend and also talked about what is going on with Chelsea's December schedule of fixtures. But that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you so much, Sam. Thank you so much for everyone who's listening. And thank you so much for your support. Go leave five-star views. Go follow us on YouTube. Subscribe and get notified for new videos when they drop. And get ready for a ton of more content heading your way as we cover the men's team, women's team, the academy, and everything in between around the great wide world of Chelsea. But until next time, you know what to do. Keep the blue flag flying high.